Hi, and welcome to another episode of Questions. My name is Nathan Elam, and before we get started here, we would like to uh, encourage you to subscribe to us on YouTube, like us on Facebook, like us on Twitter, or follow us on Twitter, like us on Instagram. There's so many uh, descriptive words, I can't keep track of them, but if, if uh, you have a social media platform, you should be able to find us on that, and we would love to see you follow us and ask us questions for future episodes. So I'm here with Pastor Joel today, and we have a question from John, who writes in, I have heard some theologians speak of the two wills of God. Is this a biblical concept? And if so, how can I best understand the two wills of God, especially in relation to my prayer life? Great. That's a good question, John. Um, I think one of the most helpful texts for this, there are several, but we'll just kind of land on this. This is uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 24. That's Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 24. The Bible says this, Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. But God raised him up ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. This is Peter speaking to the Israelites who were gathered together on the day of Pentecost. He's addressing them, and he says that on the one hand, evil people, lawless people, nailed Jesus to a cross. They did this, Peter is saying, lawlessly. They did this wickedly. It was wrong for them. They, they, they were doing something that was unjust. They crucified an innocent man. And so sinful people, lawless people, wicked people, did something that was unjust. We might say, uh, we should say, that it was the most unjust thing that has ever occurred in all of human history. It is the only time, the only time that something bad happened to someone who was and is truly good. I like the way the late great R.C. Sproul says it when receiving the question, why do bad things happen to good people? R.C. used to say, that only happened once. And he volunteered. <laughs> Meaning, uh, the question, why do bad things happen to good people? The reason why there are very few answers that are satisfying to that question is because the question itself is flawed. It's not a fair question. Uh, the question has baked into it uh, false premises. Uh, it, it assumes that there actually is such a thing as good people. But the Bible is very clear that there is only one who is truly good. Romans chapter 3 says that all, all have turned away. All have fallen. All have sinned. No one even seeks for God, much less is faithful in obedience to God. And so, 
the most heinous, wicked, unjust thing that has ever occurred in this world was the crucifixion of Jesus. And on the one hand, it occurred precisely because of lawless men who were committed and even joyful and eager to do that which was wicked. And yet, notice in this text, Acts chapter 2, 22 through 24, on the other hand, verse 23 says this, Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. Now we might ask, well, God, which one is it? Was Jesus crucified because of the lawless actions of wicked men committing a heinous crime of injustice by murdering the only truly innocent and, we might say, fully righteous man who has ever lived? Did Jesus die because of the sinful actions of sinful men? Or did Jesus die because of the predetermined sovereign will of God? Which one is it? And the biblical answer is, of course, both. It's both. God determined before the foundations of the world were even laid that his only begotten son would be handed over to be crucified at the hands of lawless men as a substitute for God's elect to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. This was planned. It was determined according to God's foreknowledge. That is, well before the occurrence actually took place. This was determined in the councils of eternity. This plan for God to redeem sinners to himself as an act of his own free grace on the merits of his son's obedience and substitutionary death. This plan is as old as God is himself, meaning this plan is eternal. The plan is eternal. It is, it is without beginning because God himself is without beginning. It belongs to the eternal decree, the eternal will, getting back to the question, of God. That is God's sovereign will. Now, here's how we answer your question, John. So we might ask from Scripture, is it God's will that people commit murder? And we would answer that from Scripture with a resounding, no, of course not. Of course, it is not the will of a thrice holy God for his image-bearing creatures to commit murder. Well, is it God's will for people to bear false witness? No. Is it God's will for people to hate his only begotten son and nail him to a tree? No. Is it God's will that anyone would reject his son? No. 
The Bible is clear all day long. This is Isaiah prophesying, that is speaking the word of God. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate and stubborn generation, pleading that you would come to me, but you would not. Or Jesus speaks of Jerusalem and says, he says, how I have longed to gather you to myself as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. I've, I've pleaded and begged you to come, but you would not. Meaning it is the will of God that people would come to him, and yet many refuse. It is the will of God that no one should reject his son, Christ Jesus, and yet people do. It is the will of God that no one would ever lie or bear false witness, and yet many do. They did precisely in the case of Jesus. There would be no crucifixion if it were not for the many false testimonies, the many individuals bearing false witness that brought about his execution. It is the will of God that no one would commit murder, and there is no just sentence of death for a man who is truly righteous. Jesus cannot be put to death at the hands of men without it being murder. Because Jesus is sinless. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is innocent. The only way Jesus is put to death is in a murderous manner. The only way that his sentence, his murderous sentence of an execution, of crucifixion, actually passes is by the bearing of false witness. And the only way that all of this occurs is with a widespread rebellion and rejection of the truth of God and His only begotten Son. And yet we've just established that all of that is very clearly, according to Scripture, against the will of God. But, according to our text, Acts chapter 2, Namely, verse 23, Jesus was delivered up according, not in contrast, not in contradiction, not against, not apart from, but with, according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. So it was the will of God for Jesus to be crucified. But it is also the will of God that thou shalt not murder and that thou shalt not bear false witness, and that thou shalt not have any other gods before him, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So how can God will for Jesus to be crucified and will that people not commit murder and bear false witness at the very same time? It seems as though perhaps God must logically possess at least two, not one, but two wills. On the one hand, he wills before the foundations of the world to redeem a people for his glory by grace through the sacrifice of his son being put to death at the hands of lawless men, murdered. And yet, at the very same time, it is also the will of God that his image-bearing creatures should live a life in accordance to his law 
which is thou shalt not murder. God wills both of these things at the very same time, meaning that God has two wills. So theologically, we would say God has two wills. One is his sovereign will. As an example, according to what we've been talking about with Acts chapter 2, God's sovereign will was the crucifixion of his own son. The second will of God, as we see it in Scripture, is his moral will, or his will of desire, desired will. And that is everything that God reveals to us. That is, thou shalt not murder. God desires that no one should commit murder. God desires that all his image bearers would be holy as he is holy. God desires that we should not sin. So God's desired will, or his moral will, is that we should not murder, and that we should not bear false witness. God's sovereign will, his predetermined will, was the murder of his own son. So we have the sovereign will of God, and the desired or moral will of God. Another way that we could label these two wills is this. We have the hidden will of God, and we have the revealed will of God. See, God uses all things. This is Romans chapter 8 now. God is working all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. All things. Not just obedience, right? The, the, the Bible doesn't say God uses our obedience exclusively for our good and for his glory. He does, but not exclusively. Now, the Bible plainly teaches that God uses not only our success, but our failure. Not only our obedience, but our sin. Not only blessing and prospering, but suffering. God uses all things for the good of those who love him. God used murder in order to redeem the world in the case of the crucifixion of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Now, that's the large story of redemption. But we know from Scripture that in your own story, John, as an individual, there is sin in your life, pain and suffering in your life. And all these things, especially your sin, it stands in direct contradiction to the moral will of God, what he has revealed, what he desires according to his word. And yet, there is no contradiction when it comes to his sovereign will, what he has planned and what he has promised to use for his glory and for your good. Here's another example. Think of a child who's born out of wedlock. Is it the will of God for two people to engage in sexual intercourse outside of the covenant of marriage? No. But is there any human being, any child that is ever born outside of God's sovereign will? I mean, think about that. Every time a child is born outside of wedlock, is God 
surprised as you say, oh, I have to alter my entire plan for the future because I wasn't counting on this human being even existing because I only will for people to engage in sexual intercourse and intimacy in the covenant of marriage. These two people engaged in sexual intimacy outside of the covenant of, of marriage, and it produced a child that, that really just kind of caught me by surprise. I wasn't planning on this person even existing. And so now I have to rewire all of the future of human history and the plan of redemption to somehow include this person that I didn't even know was going to exist. Obviously, I'm being sarcastic. I'm being facetious. Of course, that's not God's response. So on the one hand, we have two people doing something against the will of God, namely, engaging in sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage. We know from scripture that that is something against God's will. And on the other hand, we have the birth of a child that can't possibly occur outside of God's will. So which one is it? And the biblical answer again, although it may seem like a paradox of sorts, the biblical answer is both. It is against God's will. And it is in accordance with God's will. And the way that we make sense of that is to understand and acknowledge that perhaps God has two wills rather than one. It is against God's will that is his revealed, moral, desired will. His law as it comes to us on the pages of Scripture. And yet it is not against, but in accordance with God's will. That is his sovereign, predetermined will, his plan, his hidden will. Now, as all this pertains to prayer, that was the final piece of your question. How does this relate to my prayer life? When we pray, we must understand that we should pray in the very same way that we should seek to live. Really, you ask about prayer, but the larger picture is really just Christian the Christian life. It's, it's really just obedience, right? Because you could say, how does all this pertain to evangelism, right? We, we can just swap out prayer for evangelism and say, well, if it's God's will that he desires all to be saved, but then at the same time in his sovereign will, he chooses some and not others, then how does that relate to evangelism, right? Or we could say, how does it relate, as you said, John, to, to prayer? Well, really, the, the larger question is this, how does the fact, because it is a fact, how does the fact of God having two wills relate to obedience? Obedience in prayer, obedience in evangelism, obedience in parenting, obedience in, in everything. How does this relate to the Christian life, a life of obedience? And the answer is that as we pray, as we evangelize, as we worship, as we obey, as we do all these things, we do it, we should seek to do it, as much as it depends on us, by the grace of God, in accordance with God's moral will, in accordance with his desired will, in accordance to what God has clearly revealed to us in Scripture. Right? Meaning, we should never as human beings think, I know that this is immoral. Blank. Fill in the blank with whatever you want. I know this is immoral, but maybe this is something that happens to be included or a part of the sovereign will of God. And therefore, I will justify my doing of this thing by, by convincing myself that it's somehow moral, it's somehow justifiable, somehow permissible, because I think that it has it, it, it's, it's in the sovereign will of God. No. The lawless men who nailed Christ to the cross 
The Bible is very clear that they bear responsibility for that. Right? God doesn't say after the fact, hey, you crucified the perfect son of God. But morally, you're completely innocent because this is something I planned to happen from before the foundations of the, the world. No, it's not what the Bible says. It says, you're lawless men. And what you just did was completely lawless. And the implication is you bear responsibility for that lawless deed. What you did is wrong, and you are morally responsible for the wrong thing that you did, namely nailing Jesus to a cross. And yet, God, although you are wrong, and what you did is wrong, God is good. And God works all things for his glory and for the good of his people, because God plans all things, right? When the Bible says that he's working all things for the good of those who love him and those who have been called according to his purpose, the reason why God is working all things for our good is because all things have been planned by God for our good. God is not working all things. We should not understand that to be that God is salvaging all things for our good. That's how a lot of Christians read that text, Romans 8. They say, well, God is salvaging. That is, something occurs, it catches God off guard, and then he says, well, I'll make the best of the situation. He's salvaging all things for our good. No, 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 no. God is working all things, including sin and suffering, things that stand in contradiction to his moral, desired, revealed will. He is working all those things for our good because he planned all those things for our good. It is in contradiction to his moral will, but is in accordance with his sovereign will. So how do we pray? How do we evangelize? Ultimately, how do we obey? How do we live as Christians? In accordance with God's revealed, moral, desired will. And yet knowing that wherever we fail, that God is sovereign over all things, including our failures. And even these, he's not only salvaging, but he is actually predetermined and planned them for our good. We don't deserve it. What we did was wrong. And yet God uses it for our good. As a last biblical example, I'll leave you with this. I think of the narrative of Joseph and his brothers. The Bible clearly says this, Joseph speaking to his brothers as they reconcile in Egypt. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. If you remember the narrative, Joseph was the favorite of his father and his older brothers, his 10 older brothers, they threw him into a pit, lied to his father, Jacob, saying that he was mauled by some kind of wild beast and then sold him into slavery, into Egypt. And through the providence of God and according to God's sovereign will, Joseph rose slowly but surely through the ranks of Egypt all the way to being the viceroy of Egypt, the highest commanding official in all of Egypt except for Pharaoh himself. And when a great famine came, God gave Joseph the ability to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and he gave him great wisdom beyond his years in order to prepare Egypt as a safe haven with provision and food so that not only Egypt, but all the surrounding nations, including Joseph's family, his father Jacob and his brothers, would be spared. God used the sin of Joseph's brothers and their injustice towards Joseph in wrongfully selling him into slavery in order to not only benefit Joseph himself, but also benefit 
his very brothers who committed such a wicked and heinous crime against him. And Joseph says this to his brothers when they finally reunite. His brothers feel horrible about what they did to Joseph and terrified, recognizing that now he has such power and authority that if he wanted to, he could carry out swift vengeance on their heads. And yet Joseph consoles them with this sentiment. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. So how do we pray? How do we evangelize? How do we obey? How do we live? With the intent, not for evil like Joseph's brothers, not for evil like the lawless men who nailed Christ to the cross, but we should live as Christians with the intent of righteousness, of obedience, of good, while knowing that whenever we fail, even in those moments because of our indwelling sin where we do mean something for evil, even that could not possibly occur if God hadn't predestined it with the intention of good. God's sovereign will, his hidden will, which belongs to him alone, and his moral will, desired will, his revealed will, which is the lamp unto our feet, the path that we should follow. That's my answer. Great. Thank you, Pastor Joel, and thank you, John, for that question. We hope you found it edifying, and for all those tuning in, uh, once again, subscribe to us on YouTube, like us on Facebook, and we would love to hear from you guys in the future. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Questions. God bless. As a special thank you for your gift of any amount, we'll be happy to send you a free digital book from our store. To access this offer, visit rightresponseministries.com offer. We highly recommend Pastor Joel's book, Am I Truly Saved? If you or someone you know has wrestled with doubts about the love of God, this would be a great resource. As a reminder, to get this offer, go to rightresponseministries.com offer. And thank you for your generous support.